Amen. Good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, typically kosher, but Christ is risen. We were talking this morning as staff and uh, volunteers that, you know, last week there's all this energy, and, and rightly so, but this is why we gather every Sunday, because Christ has risen from the grave. He has put death to death, and we have this amazing hope that no matter where you are, you can come here with all of your hurt and brokenness and your sorrow and grief, but if the gospel truly is what we believe it is, then we leave here with a little bit more of hope. We leave here knowing that Christ is with us in the midst of whatever we go through. And so in this season, after Easter, we, we call this in the Christian calendar, Eastertide. Last year, if you recall, I mean, we were still, I think we might have still been virtually worshiping online. But during that Eastertide last year, we looked at resurrection people. These people that encountered Jesus after the resurrection. To this season of Eastertide, we're going to be looking at this resurrection church. Not so much individual people that Jesus encounters, but in this season, we're going to look at what does it look like for the church to understand and the implications that it holds that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we're going to be looking at this specific church in Thessalonica uh, that Paul writes to, and in this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And so with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started here this morning. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have risen from the grave, that you have put death to death, and that you are alive and well, and that we worship a risen king, not a dead one, but one who offers us life and something to look forward to, a hope that is so much greater than any other hope that we could put uh, our dreams and wishes in. So Lord, I pray that you would speak to us during this entire season as we look at this book of 1 Thessalonians. Do that work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, actually on the Monday of Holy Week, uh, Gallup came out with this new poll that looked at how church attendance has completely decreased. And I'll show you this chart up here. But since 1937, when Gallup began to take this poll of church membership, it had steadily been around 70% from 1937 to 1999. But at the turn of the 21st century, there has been this very sharp and steady decline from 2000 to, to this year, 2021, where it has gone from 70% down to 47%, marking the first time ever in American history where church membership has been lower than 50%, meaning that we are no longer the majority in America, whether it's attending a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Now think about that. As we think about how this shows us this irreligious nation on the increase, there has been actually a lot of concern, fear, anxiety about what the future holds for America. Christianity has been the largest percentage of people of a faith group here in America. 
And for the first time, we have to deal with and grapple with what does it mean to become an ever smaller piece of this spiritual pie. You could get rid of that chart. Thanks. Now, I don't think that's actually a bad thing. I know that the concerns and the anxieties and the worries are legitimate, but I don't actually think it's a bad thing. Why? Because when you think about the early church, they were barely more than an obscure splinter group. They took their faith seriously. They persevered, and they changed the world. This tiny little ragtag group of people as a minority Christian group, transformed the world. They became the butterflies of a pagan society. And actually, when you think about even our current world, where is Christianity thriving? It's where there's persecution. It's where the church is the minority. That is where you see the gospel flourish. And that's why I say it's not actually a bad thing. Yes, do I want to see Christianity grow. But here in the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is exactly what is happening to the church. They actually, God was actually doing something incredible through this young church plant that was impacting the entire Macedonian, Achaean society and region. I mean, look at verse 6 through 8. Look at what Paul writes. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much what? Affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example, other translations say uh, a model, to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord surrounded forth from you, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They were culture makers, culture shakers, in a, in a region where they were persecuted, but they endured, and the gospel flourished. Now, we have to understand as we begin this book, we have to give some context for what was this church in Thessalonica. I asked you in our Friday email, to, if you had time, to read actually Acts 17, 1 through 10. And there you actually get the whole history of how this Thessalonian church came to be. But just to give you some background, Paul was a church planter, right? It's addressed as Paul, Savannah, who was actually Silas, and Timothy. And on his second missionary journey, after he was in Philippi, where he writes the book of Philippians, he comes to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was the second largest city in Greece. This was a place where culture, politics, education happened. They were the second largest city in Greece, and it was actually named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. But it was this capital of this Roman province of Macedonia in the northern part of Greece, what is today Greece. And it was a center also for Roman imperial cults. It was a site of many temples. I mean, if you looked, there were all these temples that were dedicated to the service of many different gods and deities. Here, where in America we separate church and state, there, it all came together. So if you had a work job that you needed that was due on Friday, 
you would go to a temple, you would worship and make offerings to this God, and then you would go back home and hope that everything worked out well. If you were sick, you would go into the temple, pray to the God of Klepias, and then come out and hope that you would get better. All of life centered around these cults and pagan deities. So when Saul, Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived to Thessalonica, they go and do exactly what they've always done, which is what? They go into the synagogues. And they begin to preach. And in here in Acts 17, we see that they preach for three straight weekends in the synagogue to Jewish people, to God-fears who weren't, who weren't fully committed to, to the God that they worship, but began to worship with fellow Jews but were Gentiles. And also prominent women that Paul talks about in Acts 17. And as he begins to tell how the Old Testament points to the Messiah, Jesus, who was risen from the dead, the church begins to be formed. But as the church is planted, guess what happens? There's a mob that wants to kill Paul. And so in the dead of night, Paul, Silas, and Timothy leave. Suddenly, probably after a few months, of beginning to plant this church, they have to leave in the dead of night because of fear of what might happen to them. And what would a good pastor do who would have to leave so abruptly, concerned about all the persecution and hardships that a church was facing, a young church at that? He's worried. He wants to know how are they doing? Are they even surviving? I've only been there a few months, and through all that persecution, are they surviving? So what does he do? In all that anxiety and worry and concern, he sends Timothy. He sends Timothy to Thessalonica to find out, are they surviving? And Timothy comes back with this glowing report. They're not surviving. They're thriving in the midst of affliction and suffering and persecution. And so Paul writes this letter back to the church of Thessalonica, giving them thanks and joy for what report he had gotten from Timothy. And so half of this letter from chapter 1 through 3 is this thanksgiving for what God is doing through this small ragtag group of people influencing the entire region of Macedonia and Achaia and elsewhere. And then in chapters 4 and 5, it's these exhortations, concerns that he had heard about addressing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for the seven, next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at this book. But today, as we begin this introduction, I just want to talk about what it looked like to be this new community that became such an example, a model for an entire region that wasn't secular, but pagan. For us, it's secular. And I think we see these two markers that as we learn from this church, what does it look like for us as we become a minority group? And with the possibilities of experiencing maybe persecution in the future. How can we have, be an example, a model that can still transform the world in spite of these gra of poles that are being taken. And the realization of how our nation is becoming more secular. Two things. A two-point sermon. First is we need to remember our identity. We need to remember our identity. Look at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now listen to how he addresses the church, their identity. 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's odd. He uses the word in, not a church of God of God the Father, not a church established in God the Father, but a church in God the Father. What Paul is reminding the church of Thessalonica and us is that our identity as the church is first and foremost as members of a new kingdom established by God. They were an outpost, a visible sign of a new kingdom. They weren't just some regional capital of Macedonia. Their identity was no longer just as citizens of Thessalonica, but as members and citizens, citizens of this new kingdom. In other words, for Restoration Community Church, we are a part of a church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is actually amazing here in this entire book is that there is no other book where, where Paul uses such familial endearment. First Thessalonians, he uses brothers and sisters, the Greek word adelphoi, 19 times in this letter, giving us probably one of the most important windows into the early church's self-identity and ours as well. One scholar said this, the recipients of this letter are those who have been alienated from their society due to, due to their new religious allegiance, but whose new social identity is forged by the one who is their father. This is our identity as the church. And where it's rooted is in verse 4, when Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Think about that. Before the creation of the world, God chose us and loved us. You hear me say over and over again that even when the worst is known about you, love is still offered. And even before the beginning of this world, before this church was ever established, he chose us out of his love. Not because of your, your accomplishments. Not because of your resume. Not because of how great your family is or your work, but because he loved us. Let me ask you a question. Is this how we view our identity? That we actually belong to one another? That I actually have obligations and commitments to one another, to this family here at Rescom? Or is there a sense in which we live like much as the culture says that I belong to myself? That I am my own, that my family is my own, that when I come in, when I turn on the TV, that I come here, hear some good things, and go back, but function individually? Or do we see that we are connected to our good Father in heaven, and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ? It's such an amazing thing here. Think about this. This church was established by how? Jewish people, Gentiles, God-fearers, women, prominent, important women. Culturally very different. Religiously very different. And what unites them is that they are a family of God that are transformed. Whether it's politics, ethnicity, career, stage of life. All of their markers, identifiers are being transformed by this new kingdom of God that they belong to. And it actually gives us opportunity then to critique all the things that identify us. Whether it's your politics. 
whether it's your socioeconomic status, the gospel critiques and says that what actually grounds us together and brings us together is our identity in Christ. That is an amazing thing to think about and why they actually transform an entire culture and region because they know that they belong to God and they belong to one another. They turn from their idols, as Bethany reminded us in verse 9, right? For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Where do you find your identity? They turn from the other identifiers and turn to God who gave them their worth and said, we belong not only to our Father, but to one another. That's how transformation happened. But secondly, they not only remembered their identity, they also remembered their mission. Look at verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to continue to hear this language that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians of faith, love, and hope. And he immediately begins to thank the Thessalonians for what? This mission that they were on. This described the church and should describe us and what we are called to do. Look at this. Work of faith. Labor of love. A steadfastness of hope. What are those three things? Just briefly When you think about work of faith, you're like, well, aren't those opposed against one another? Like, it is by grace we have been saved, not by works. Well, what Paul is addressing here is like, out of our faith and our identity in Christ, good works should flow out of our faith. And it's this works that they see and hold so importantly that is influencing and changing their society and culture. Now, there's... There's different ways to parse out what works Paul is talking about. He actually keeps it vague. Is it vocation, your work? Is it ministry in the church and your service in the church? Or in the Jewish community, good works represented justice and mercy. Well, is that what Paul is talking about? He's actually leaving it vague because I think what he's trying to do is say all of those things out of your faith are, is good works flowing out from your life in the church. So when you think about your vocation, as Dorothy Sayers, an author, defines work as good work done well, do we view our office, our homes, our workspaces, our studios as sacred because we see the intersectionality between faith and work? Is that true of us? When you think about ministry and the church, do you view the church as family and as a signpost for the kingdom of God? And if so, how do we serve And continue to see the church grow and flourish to the mission that God has called restoration to. When you think about justice and mercy, are we acting as such where we are being charitable to the poor? Visiting the sick, hospitality to strangers, comfort for the downtrodden, the poor, the afflicted. Are these things true of us in our family, in our friends, in our community? In other words, do we seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I am called as a citizen of the kingdom of God and as aliens and exiles? 
not citizens of St. Louis, but as true citizens of heaven, are we bringing about the flourishing through our work? But secondly, this labor of love. And I think the best way that Paul describes this is that these, this phrase referred to any kind of self-sacrificing labor that engaged those inside and outside the church. And, why, and it was for the purpose of benefiting others. Remember, he was writing to the church that was in the context of suffering and persecution. And their love was laborious. It was hard. It was difficult. Love was not simply an emotion, but they actually endured. Why? For the sake and benefit of others. Is there forgiveness? Is there love toward enemies, those that you disagree with? Is your conduct above reproach, even when you want to get angry? There was this identifier of a labor of love that transformed the world, but also this steadfastness of hope. Other translations say endurance of hope. Paul was greatly concerned for the stability of the Thessalonian church. But the Thessalonians showed this grit, this tenacious endurance in the face of opposition and hostility. And their source of perseverance and hope was not some inner resolve, right? It wasn't like just suck it up and have personal strength, but their hope was in what? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, the resurrection is what gave them hope. Jesus was not dead, but he was alive. And the hope that they had, had was not some vague expectation about a better future in your job or in a relationship or in this pandemic, but it was so much greater than that. It was rooted in the expectation of Christ's coming. This was the strong foundation that gave the Thessalonians the power to endure, to persevere, and to transform the world. Some, some of us on staff, and my wife as well, we got our second vaccine shot on Friday. And I won't name names, but some of us really suffered yesterday. <laughs> And in the midst of the suffering, it could easily be where you just feel like, woe is me. And you could be so focused on the present realities that you lose, you lose focus on what is to come. That I can go into restaurants and enjoy a nice meal. I could go into your homes and visit with you, maybe with my mask on if that's what you feel better. But I want to take it off and enjoy the freedom that I have now. But so many times, we can easily be so focused on the present that we lose sight of the future that is to come. And we see that here. This was not true of the Thessalonian church. Their hope was in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was going to come back and they were going to spend the rest of the eternity as the family of God together. As as I reflected on 
this Gallup poll that was taken that for the first time marked that the Christian faith was now a minority. David French, who's the senior editor of the Dispatch, wrote a beautiful article about what this means in light of Easter and the resurrection. And I just want to quote one thing that he said, and he said this. One can look back at the Gallup graph above and perceive a kind of institutional death in process. But the Christian faith is a resurrection faith. It is rooted in an internal reality that not even death itself can prevail against the sovereignty and love of the creator God. In rebirth, we change. We transform. Or to put it another way, when it comes to the health and strength of the American church, Good Friday is in process. In other words, death is happening. But fear not. We know that Sunday is on its way. You see, this is truly the way Christianity and the church grows and is transformed and impacts the surrounding culture, city, and its communities. It's never top-down. That's what got us in trouble. But it's rather bottom-up. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember our identity. Pursue the mission of faith, love, and hope, and let's patiently wait with hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your Son, who is not dead but alive. And though we might look at our present circumstances of our Christianity and of our faith here in America and being worried and concerned, Lord, we know that death does not have the final word. But the gospel is alive, and it can transform the community and the world as it did in Thessalonica. So, Lord, do that good work here. Lord, give us this great mission to continue to carry on, one this of, of, of excellent work in our faith, a labor of love, and an endurance, a steadfastness of hope, so that we might slowly but surely, like, like the chrysalis, continue to grow and be transformed, not because of anything that we do, but because of Jesus who was raised from the dead. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.